Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Radai. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you? All good. And with the market at low levels and small and micro caps even lower, I'm busy researching new ideas. I think this is the times that long-term investors really live for and, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a good time. I think uh, today's guests are very fitting in that sense. We have the pleasure of speaking with Shu Hattori, our first Japanese native on the show. And uh, Shu has more than 15 years of experience in management consulting, turnarounds and venture-backed startups, with employers including McKinsey in Tokyo and Shanghai, Groupon in Asia and Alex Partners. And what Shu is doing now is building Japan's first serial acquirer, Pinecone Assets, together with Andrew Cho, who will also join us in this episode. So, Niklas, which book will we speak about? So, on top of his other merits, Shu is also an internationally published author. The name of his book is The McKinsey Edge, Success Principles from the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. So, Eddie, why is this book of interest for us as investors? As the subtitles indicates, uh, McKinsey is one of, if not the most powerful consulting firm in the world, and it has been so for a long time. So while we as investors, we might not agree with everything they do, and it's, uh, it's a special world being a consultant in, in usually big organizations, there is tons of knowledge in firms like McKinsey on how leaders and organizations can think to outperform their competition. And what I also like about the book is that Shu is a really organized person, and he provides a lot of advice on how to improve our processes to get better results, which is really useful as an investor. Uh, what are your thoughts about the McKinsey Edge? I think it's an interesting book with lessons on how to improve yourself, how to improve groups, and also productivity hacks. And that's also more or less the structure of the book. Um, Shu, I mean, have that overall uh, structure with, uh, I mean, I think he, he begins with uh, lessons on how to improve yourself uh, and, and uh, list a few principles. Uh, and then he goes on with uh, how to improve groups and uh, a few principles and, and then productivity hacks. Um, I really like the section of the book discussing the importance of staying focused on long-term improvements. Uh, that really resonates with me because it's the way I think about investing. The best companies, in my view, prioritize the long-term over the short-term. And I, I think Shu brings up a few points on long-termism, which investors can match companies' wordings with. The McKinsey Edge was first published by McRoyal in 2016, and we are delighted to have its author and its business partner on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Shu Hattori and Andrew Cho. Hello, Shu and Andrew, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Glad to be here. Very much excited. Glad to be here. Thank you. We met in Stockholm earlier this year, and it's great to now have you on with us in, in the show. So where are you this time? So right now I am in Nihonbashi, which is in the, the heart of Tokyo, right behind the sort of Tokyo Stock Exchange. So our building is really behind this monumental exchange. And uh, it's actually where the, the founder of the Jap Japanese banking system, Shibusawa Eiichi, used to live. Wonderful. And, and how about you, Andrew? Yeah, I'm right next to Shu. <laughs> Perfect. And and for our listeners to get to know you, if we start with you, Shu, what led you into the world of uh, business and entrepreneurship and investing? Yeah, so for me, my grandfather was an entrepreneur in Shizuoka, which is a prefecture west of Tokyo, known for its uh, green tea. 
And he operated like a car dealership, an auto dealership, primarily for uh, Suzuki cars. And he was also a mechanic at the same time. This was like after the World War II. And uh, there, was, there was nothing as barren land. And he actually started importing foreign cars, which was the sort of the fad at the time. So he was really ahead of his, his time. And I, I think for me, I've always like, had it in me to do something exciting and meaningful for society. So those two things need to be pretty much integrated. And I think uh, right now that those two opportunities sort of collided with the um, founding of these succession issues and business succession issues that we find in Japan right now. And this like perpetual autonomous serial choir model that that we've witnessed. And, and that that sort of combination really led to this this opportunity right here. We will speak a bit more about that later on in the conversation. Looking forward to that. But but first, uh, Andrew, how has uh, your journey been? Yeah, so look, I'd like to say that I've kind of done all the things that Shu hasn't done, professionally speaking, and vice versa. So I come from a investing slash sort of corporate finance kind of background. So um, I was an engineer by training. I did my um, I did my stint in investment banking, moved on to the buy side. Um, I did you know five years in private equity investing, mostly in the micro cap space, and then you know most recently, um, sort of my role was basically as you know in in, in a long short equity fund. And, um, and my focus there was basically investing in Japanese companies and basically trying to find just sort of those great, um, high quality Japanese companies. Um, and in between all of that, um, I actually bought a small sanitary hygiene business, which I ran, uh, which I was an owner operator of. Um, and that sort of, I guess, made me really sort of appreciate number one, the sort of opportunities that are in this uh, SME space. And, and and also, you know, being a hands-on operator, um, it gets you to really appreciate certain things about sort of business um, rather than just being an investor looking from outside in. So, so yeah, so that was really fun for me. Um, and so in terms of where sort of I cross paths with uh, with Shu, well, look, you know, as you can tell, our, different, our, our backgrounds are sort of fairly different. So, you know, we didn't meet at work or you know at school but look we met sort of later in life um, we met socially and you know it was one of those things where we kind of just sort of clicked and you know and sort of what sort of really got the conversation or got the sort of friendship going was really sort of our shared interest in uh, in business and in investing um, and I guess what's really sort of interesting there was that basically what sort of provided the connective tissue in terms of our you know ongoing conversations was actually books um so we're both sort of avid readers and i know in your website there's a book you know there's a book list of about 20 books of the best investing books and you know you know and you know we probably have you know read maybe 15 of them at least like you know uh, where we both have you know commonly read those books and so i think it's quite apt that we're on this podcast because i mean i guess Sort of that's similar to your modus operandi. You know, you're basically connecting a community of people that um, enjoy business and um, enjoy investing through books. 
so yeah so look forward to a fun conversation thanks for that great introduction and uh, i mean talking about books for the first part of the this episode we will focus on shoes book uh, the mckinsey edge and uh, then go in a bit more into what you're doing at pinecon so shu how did your book uh, come about yeah so i personally uh, have a um, passion and interest in in writing to begin with. And uh, actually my my career started off as a financial journalist and it was a very short stint um, before I left for Taiwan and then subsequently China. But it, it was it was like um, my passion never died down. And for this particular book, The McKinsey Edge, to be honest, it was it was sort of accidental because uh, because of the rigor in, in McKinsey, I always had to be taking a lot of notes and these notes were important for me as I really tried to solve through the daily grind and the hardships in our projects and then to get every time I would get advice from seniors I would put them into a framework you know into nice charts and really clean them up so that I can use them for my next projects and then I would actually be better so I could perform better and I'm not sure if you're aware, but McKinsey has this sort of um, up or out policy where every six months you are assessed. And if your performance review doesn't go as planned or on par or called tracking, you 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 do have to have a very serious discussion with your seniors. Right. So it, it was more of that. And then I started realizing that these sort of how to practical intelligence tips was actually very, very, very important to my success and also to to my colleagues' successes. And actually, then I started to talk and gather these nuggets from the other managers and other partners who were in the firm that I respected. And they also had these amazing tips, these are leadership tips to to get to the next level. And so that that's really how it happened. And then I started to interview more in depth and gathering more and more of these leadership tips and and then I really went on from there. I think it was really, really helpful to have that, I mean, practical aspect of the book that you really, I mean, learned all these lessons from working. Um, I think it's similar to, we had an episode with uh, Daniel Chang from, from Technion and his book about investing is also really about his lesson from doing this practically. And I think that's, I mean, take this to a, to a different level. And uh, your book uh, largely consists of 47 principles. Why did you choose to have that structure? So, yeah, it's, it, that, that part's quite simple. It's, it's, I started to gain, so I started collecting these, these principles. And um, the more and more I, I gained, so past 40, 50, I actually went up to, all the way to like 70. The principles were not as novel or original anymore. And it's, it started to kind of merge at a golden sort of number of 45 to 50, where it, it really had that spike. And then I just knew from the McKinsey MISI kind of framework, it was a bottom-up MISI, but you, know, you could get to that number. And it, it was just that really covered everything from individuals to growing with others to productivity, process, and then what are the really hard things that we, we can't really think about intuitively? And, and that's where it was, it, was, it was 47. And the book is written from a consultant's perspective, but uh, I mean, we read it from an investor's perspective. And 
there are many insights that are re- relevant for, for investors, I think. Uh, and one example is uh, a McKinsey colleague that you had at the time who was named Dave, and he was doing a lot of market research, and that's something we also do as investors and, and analysts and so on. And uh, he would always ask the question, when was the last time I dot 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 did something? Um, so can you tell us a bit more about this and how you used it? Yeah, thank you. So this is very specific questions. and. <laughs> It shows how much deep dive analysis you've done in the book, so I'm flattered. So so Dave was a partner at the time, and he was uh, in the aerospace and automotive industry. And for content's sake, uh, this particular principle was about commitment plan. And to have a commitment plan allows you to reach your goals, and you, you tend to achieve them um, through this principle. And I think, um, for example, right, so... If you're trying to get very good at forecasting uh, future trends in a certain industry, automotive or aerospace, like Dave was, um, realize that it's not just enough to be attending seminars or panels or info discussions or even watching YouTube, right? And instead, it is a lot more important to test yourself through real engagement questions. So engaging yourself with what you know and the real outside world. And this question, what, when was the last time I, for example, right? When was the last time I spoke to someone outside my immediate circle? Or when was the last time I looked at, at a tangential or peripheral technology? Or when was the last time if you have a department like the R&D department, did I go down there to talk to them real time, right? So this, when was the last time actually puts you in a very acute sort of time-centric relevancy mode. And, and that is what is very important, I, I believe, for consultants as, as well, but more so for investors, because relevancy is, is the most important thing when you think about future trends and how that's going to pan out. Um, so I believe that um, when you do look into these, right, when was the last time I, it really hits home. And the last, the last point is about the ease of answering this question. So when you are able to tick this off, check this off, when you when was the last time I talked to this expert? And it's like, oh, yesterday, I know my kind of thing. Then you, it, means, it means you really know the subject well. Yeah, I, m- I make the connection to checklists that we, we use as investors. And I guess you could build a checklist out of this and have many situations where you would ask yourself, when was the last time I did X, Y, Z? And maybe there are like uh, other situations where you can also can use this. Do you have any such examples? I mean, when you're talking about governing your own own companies, I think it's important to ask that question. When was the last time I went down to the you know to the factory or to to talk to the customers? And if you even if you are not the operator and you're an investor, when was the last time I I, I went on talk to the customers of the investment company that I'm investing in, right? Because that that goes a whole nine yards. But that that would really give you a lot of confidence. And another method that you practiced at uh, McKinsey was to ask second order questions, which I think also investors benefit a lot from, from doing. And maybe first to maybe you can explain a bit what, what is a second order question? Yeah, great question. Indeed, it's just like a hard one to grasp at first. So second order questions, uh, for those unfamiliar, is, is a question that you have to dig deeper and becomes extremely valuable when you may have to make a decision. And it arises actually from the first or what we call the first order question, where we ask the five whys 
And the, and the five whys is you keep asking why, 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 so that you seemingly get to the bottom of that issue. And it's actually very helpful to get to the bottom of that issue. But um, in the middle of my tenure, or, or most consultants arrive at this conclusion, is that that is actually not enough to just ask the five whys, which turns into so what implications. It, it's even more important to ask the next level, which is the second order questions. And that, that is what the second order question ultimately means. And I think we can start with this sort of understanding this why level, but you know, why should we raise uh, prices because uh, the competitor is raising prices? Or why is the competitor raising prices uh, because of rising inventory costs or logistics costs? Why is the logistics cost uh, rising is because of the supplier or some something like that? And you get to the bottom of this. And, and, and then you realize, so you can make a decision. But even after you make the decision, it's not enough. It's almost like you have to go beyond that and say, you assume that the prices were raised. Then what happens to the industry dynamics, the competitors, the long-term profitability impact? And it really encourages you to think about the deeper consequences in mind. And, and this, is the, this is the really the key point uh, for investors, I think. So if this concern that you have indeed materialized, right? Would they be comfortable with that outcome? And would that give them enough um, margin of safety? And that's something positive or negative impact for the long run. These kind of things ultimately will become your answer when you, when you ask this second order of questions. I think you summarize a lot of the operating system that people such as Buffett has. I think when, when people ask him, what are you doing every day? And, and he says, says reading and thinking. And I think that's what you mentioned here is a lot of, lot of the things that he thinks about. <laughs> that's too much of a flattery. But yes, I think thinking sets leaders apart. That is the core. And uh, you also share many ideas in the book on how to improve our processes. I mean, for example, many investors have probably never thought about the importance of, of a note-taking. And uh, myself, when I read this, I was, I was a bit, I mean, um, in my early, early years, as, as I mean, working, working at a bank, uh, when there were like presentations, I always, I mean, took notes meticulously. And that was something I, I learned from university. But now, more or less, I just take a few notes every time. And uh, I mean, I, I, I really got something out of the book on this. I mean, uh, you didn't know as well before McKinsey, it seemed, but you learned a lot from from other peers in in McKinsey. So, what are your lessons from there and and elsewhere on this topic? So, on the note taking topic, is a spectacular question. So, first off, um, let let me hold your thought about taking fewer notes. I'll get to that. But in general, I believe note taking is the holy grail for consultants and investors and every aspiring businessman out there. And the question now becomes, what, are, what is it about note-taking tactically you should think about, in, in, including the output and the process? And I, and I can offer you three nuggets to think. One is really focus on the structure of your notes. And you start off with a long form of unstructured notes, and that is very normal. And you let that be. So you let your mind carry your way through. And, and a lot of people try to structure it as they write the notes. It's actually not the right sort of approach. It's actually you just write out these long form notes and then you 
use your inner theme later to structure this. And, and that's what, what is extremely important because then you can apply the risk reward or opportunity, threats, people, processes, business, sort of what you also do uh, on your podcast as well. And that's, that requires a lot of thinking. So that doesn't happen in sort of phase one. And, and the next thing is the next level up is what you just mentioned is as you grow, you take fewer notes and you're able to take fewer notes because with a few words, you're able to unlock all of that wisdom underneath them. And it's training your mind to be able to do that. And the better you get, um, the, the deeper or the, the thinking part becomes much more refined. So that's, this, that's sort of the, the second phase. And the third one is, this is the hardest, although sounds very intuitive, is reviewing your notes. So a lot of us take these notes and then, and then that's it. And we forget about it. We don't go back. We don't review them. And we just feel very satisfied and fulfilled that we have a book and shelf full of all these notes. And, and that's where a lot of, of the wisdom is lost. And I, I, I take this upon myself. I actually have these notes in different colors now that where I just flip through them. And just flipping through them really takes you really down, down that path, that, that random walk sort of path. And it's really good. I mean, you're really the the master in this aspect. I mean, you. I mean, this is really the start of the book, right? I mean, you started to write down the lessons that you got from McKinsey, and then it became a book. So you took it to the to the next level. And uh, I mean, you don't need to to take it to to that level, maybe. But as you said, I mean, you need to follow up. You need to, I mean, review and 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 learn from it. Otherwise, otherwise, it doesn't make make so much sense to put put the effort in actually. How do you think investors can apply this when when meeting uh, invest meeting companies and uh, I mean managers and so on um, during the research process? What what lessons can can they bring? The, the biggest lesson they can bring is there's twofold. One is capturing only the the essence uh, of what's being discussed. So as you get better and better at these note taking tactics you get to only capture the essence and and crystallize. So what I mean by this is a, a lot of uh, people don't take notes, might do recording. And by recording, they shut, they shut their mind sort of down and they don't focus on what's important. So um, I think by, by really taking that note to the next level, you are really squeezing out that, that cream of the crop and the essence is what the the management or the these people can bring because the question really comes from when you're in that meeting yourself and speaking with the person i mean the most important thing in my view is actually to listen and 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 grasp everything they said say to be able to ask the next question because it's a bit different if you li- listen to like uh, some person speaking and, and you're not the one uh, that needs to ask the question how do you think about that i mean in terms of, of the listening aspect and, and really grasp everything and at the same time taking these, these good notes? Mm, that's a very difficult question. I think too many people focus on what they're going to say next and they don't focus on listening first. And the actual answer is that if you listen intently to that person, you don't need to think about what you're going to say next. 
that note-taking aspect helps you grasp all that important information and let your mind free. So by note-taking, your mind becomes emptier. So it's freer to engage directly with your counterpart. And it will take some practice naturally because you need to move on from a note-taking, listening, what am I going to say next mode to completely being vulnerable and listening and not knowing what to say next. After you've managed to overcome that, you will start finding these very easy to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's both. I mean, it's both both experience, but not only experience. You actually need to think about how to do this in, in the, the right way. And I think that answer really helps. I'm also curious about your uh, about the part afterwards. And you mentioned this coloring system. Can you can you tell us a bit more about that? How how you have set that up? So you know, initially, I had just two notes: random note, whatever color, and a pink note. And the pink note was for the organized notes. And now I used a just just you can get these colors, any color, you know, blue, green, white, uh, black. Uh, brown, any of these colors I have, and and you just use these notes for different you know seasons, and and then you just index them, and then you have a master note, whatever color you like, and you put that into your master note, sort of like that. It's it's not categorically or thematically different because you don't want to do that right away. Interesting, and um, we can't go through all of the forty-seven principles from your book. Uh, we recommend everyone to to buy the book and read them, of course. Uh, but there's one principle that caught my attention, which was number twelve, where you write about passion, and that in the beginning of your time at McKinsey, you really had to force yourself to get up early in the morning and and be excited about work and get it done. But how did you overcome this over time? You mean about the the passion area? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a very difficult question. Um, so, in in, a, in 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 our world, or in the professional world, in consulting, or maybe banking, or or the lawyerly work, I'm not talking for everyone, but it's hard to really get up in the morning and 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 do the daily grind. And there, I wanted to sort of have a a, a light on the perception of passion. So broadening your horizon of what the definition of passion should be. And passion usually is not um, very clear to a lot of people. And by having into different layers, you're able to give yourself um, some pat on the back to push yourself forward and keep going. And so I emphasize that. And I think uh, the mainstay passion for consulting would be something like problem solving and 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 that would be the 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 biggest thing and then next thing would be in different industries and client segments so you try to develop an expertise right but actually beneath that there are also uh, other areas like people the place the organization and the broad ecosystem contributions um as well that you are dealing with and and i and i try to sort of compartmentalize that into different areas where you can find passion. Like I really like working with this particular team, uh, even though I don't like working the automotive sector. And that's okay. That could be part of your passion. Um, Or it could be capability or skill set development, like chart writing, synthesizing, making issue trees, hypothesis trees. So I like all of that technical things. That's my passion. And therefore, 
so that was that was that was the aim and by doing that you're really able to push yourself uh more and more when life gets rougher and harder and harder and as for me that's what worked and that was the key message in that principle um there is a hack for doing things when you are demotivated and you are lacking this passion is uh you just put your your shoes outside the door and you just throw it out there in the morning and you must get out of the house that really gets you going especially if you have any interest in the levels of what you're doing at work not even at the macro or the big picture level but even at the at the lower level if you if you have anything you like you know that once you get into the office you're going to be okay our health coach is giving the same advice just put on your training uh, training clothes and your and your running shoes and and get out of the door you don't have to do anything more just just close your your door and go outside and then you can go back in if you want to but usually you you you're so committed that you're still going to continue i guess it's the the sunk cost fallacy playing there uh, but but how is your passion now uh, at pinecone assets so i th- i think this is a great segue to the pinecone so pinecone at the big picture i am i'm i'm deeply engaged and passionate about both the the social and the, and the economic uh impact and even at the daily grind which is doing all the admin work and reaching out to 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 these brokers day in day out and also also call calling all of that inclusive uh is 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 spectacularly interesting for me right now and uh i mean on that please tell us why you started the the firm from the beginning i think the short answer to this is that we saw the need and and we were or we are able to feel that need at the at the right moment i believe everything uh, on 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 business is is about about timing and that's a very very key element much of pinecone's core vision should be credited to my partner andrew especially because uh he he is the mastermind of everything and and the business model but i guess we both start with a question of how do we best invest and compound the modest amounts of capital that we have the respective founders have over a very long horizon of 20-30 years and we asked this question personally but also because this is probably the big question that most everyone is asking somewhere inside their head as they go through their journey the financial journey and so then we sort of juxtapose that to the uh, a book or an, an a theme called ikigai in in Japanese it's called ikigai but subsequently become very popular uh in in English and it's a very popular word and it means uh there's a four elements uh that it's like a Venn diagram talking about what you love what the world needs or what the community needs and what you can be paid for and what you are good at so all of these four things and you're at the center point and and i think i think pinecone addresses all of that at at the micro level which is us but also at the next level which is which is really which is really important and uh for, for me it was a combination of this personal necessity and business opportunity and and the right aspiration and and on this i think andrew is going to talk a little bit deeper into all of these um and so i want to just 
emphasize the right aspiration. And, and that is how we got connected with you guys in, in landing on the Swedish Zero Choirs. But, but that model especially addresses the long-term perpetual holding and the decentralized model. And, and on all of this really clicked for us. And it was actually very novel. It was original for, for, for us. And that really sparked their interest. So, Andrew, you are the co-founder of Pinecone Assets. And uh, after this great introduction of, of why you wanted to do this, um, can you tell us a bit more so our listeners understand what Pinecone is doing and who are your role models in this endeavor? Yeah, so look, um, we met in Stockholm, I think, a month or two ago. Um, and that wasn't by accident. Um, so, you know, we we actually came to Stockholm because, you know, we have been really studying the Swedish serial acquirers model. And, you know, you guys sitting in Stockholm must be very, very familiar already with the model. Uh, you know, I, my understanding is that there's currently 80 to 100, uh, you know, Swedish serial acquirers out there. Um, but this is actually a totally foreign concept um, to us, not just in Japan, but in Asia, right? And, you know, we looked at this model and, you know, we actually said, oh, wow, this is, um, this is a really interesting model. And, you know, and we looked at the cultural sort of the cultural background and the sort of business norms in Sweden. And we compared that against Japan and we go, oh, wow, there are also a lot of similarities, right? Between how people do business, between the stakeholder sort of orientation um you know off to japan and sweden um is much more and then you know i'm obviously it's not exactly the same but i think um you know our it's you know it is much more so so japan's business culture is much more closer to the scandinavian one than an anglo-saxon one and it's also really interesting to us because i mentioned so that so there's a lot of like an entire universe of very successful um, Swedish serial acquirers out there. Um, and, you know, that's kind of important because it does show to us that, look, you know, if one or two people are doing it, then you go, oh, hey, look, you know, maybe there's a bit of hindsight bias. Maybe there's a bit of survivorship bias. Um, maybe someone's just sort of retrofit a narrative around a success story, around some luck. Look, but look, if you have a universe, you know, a large universe of companies doing um, doing large, look, not doing exactly the same thing, but sort of underlying sort of what they do and looking you know, from what we discern, there are basically three things that are sort of non-negotiable in this model. Number one, you're acquiring high quality, uh, small and medium enterprises, um, that are cash flow generative. Number two, you are, you have a perpetual holding, uh, holding period. And number three, um, there's a decentralized operating model. Um, so, you know, we're using this kind of formula, you know, you, you know, there are many companies in Sweden that are sort of successful. So, you know, that tells us that this model, um, is repeatable, is replicable and, you know, and scalable. And that's very important to us. So, you know, conversely, we, we kind of then took this model out to the market here in Japan and, you know, we spoke to founders, etc. And yeah, look, it was very, very well received. And, you know, and in certain, in, in a number of cases, it actually gave us a competitive edge in a competitive auction process um, because they like this model. Um, so, so, so it's a kind of short, 
So coming back to our role model, so I think we actually came to Stockholm um, a couple of months ago to uh, to meet with our role models, um, and you know that was tremendously fruitful for us, and you know everyone was very very generous uh, with their time and their knowledge, and you know that um, as she would tell you, like gave us the confidence to really really go ahead, um, you know, and and really go hard. And in um, in driving this model in Japan, um, so yeah, so so that's sort of in a nutshell what we're doing. I mean, uh, one thing uh, that's striking with this model, I think, is you you have this um, this model where you where you get cash flows from from the businesses you buy, and you can use that cash flow to buy more businesses. And I mean, one one key aspect of this is that because we we often get this question: why is it is it uh, I mean, from year to year, possible to buy these businesses at such a large discount from the market. And I think the key in that is that uh, these businesses that you buy, they don't have any avenue to use the cash flows for. So they would dividend out uh, the money to the to the family, uh, typically. Uh, and now you have this model where you can use the cash flows to to acquire acquire more businesses. And one aspect of that is that I mean, the really great serial acquirers, in 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 our view. They don't. They don't try to to grow fast. I mean, they they try to to grow in a in a. I mean, quite good good pace. But I mean, in terms of, of the model that you that you spoke about, I mean, buying asset light businesses with good cash flows. That means that you could grow maybe fifteen, maybe twenty percent per year from from your own cash flows. And we have seen now from the last years in the in the hype that we actually had in Sweden with with companies coming in and and to try. To, to do this in a in a quick way, they failed, and now they are overlevered, and they are selling businesses and, and not acquiring businesses. So with that said, I mean you have, um, I mean you're looking to to have like a base capital base, and then you will you will start to buy companies out of that. Uh, how many companies do you own and, and plan to own, and, and how do you think about that? I mean first buying these uh, these businesses uh, to have that base, and then. Uh, growing from your own cash flows versus, I mean, bringing in more money and, and so on. Talk about how, how you think about that. Yeah. So look, I mean, that, that's 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 very interesting. So, and just um just just want to sort of uh, address one point there. I mean, you mentioned um, businesses that are generating a lot of cash flow, but then they don't have any way to deploy it. Well, yesterday we met a founder, um, you know, and he's in his sort of late sixties, and Basically, he has a great business, um, a dominant business distribution business in Tokyo, um, and you know the company. He told us, look, the company is generating a lot of cash. He has no way to deploy it, so he's gone and built an art museum. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's um, and that's the kind of opportunities that we're looking at here in Japan, um, honestly. And um, yeah, so so then to uh, to to answer your um, your second question. Um, so we like to think in terms of milestones. Um, so right now we are in phase one. Um, and so in this phase one, so we want to assemble a portfolio of uh, small and medium enterprises. Um, and we want to assemble such a portfolio that we can, uh, you know, we can achieve what, what we call escape velocity. And, you know, by escape velocity, I mean, look, you know, that basically... The company can basically um, generate 
continuous acquisition pathway, um, continue to deploy um, capital without having to raise additional capital from 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 externally. Um, and to us, um, we feel that's around five or six businesses um, that would provide us with a you know well diversified cash flow stream. Um, at the same time, that would that, that would provide us with um, yeah with, with enough cash flow to be able to grow by acquisition going forward. Um, and then you know as for that, and once we reach that um, that escape velocity, after that you know the, the model basically is you then judiciously acquire a few more companies each year, and we will see how that goes. It'll be really interesting to follow. Uh, what type of sectors are you focusing in, or are you sector agnostic? Yeah, so we're sector agnostic. Um, obviously, there are sectors that we like more than others. But look, we just want to keep an open mind at the end of the day, because um, in the SME universe, and I have been in this universe for quite a while, um, you often just come across industries that you never even know existed before, right? Um, and so that's sort of by definition a niche business because it's so niche. You go, oh wow, that's a business that's generating like thirty-five percent EBITDA margin. Like, if you're seeing in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, and and that's sort of why we want to keep, um, you know, keep an open mind regarding the um, the the sectors we're focused on. Um, now, having said that, I mean, there's no reason why we wouldn't double down on a sector. Uh, you know, we find it attractive and we already have assets in there. And basically there is, you know, there, there's obviously uh, sort of meaningful benefits to continue to um, continue to build up, build up our sort of portfolio around that, that sector. Um, and should that be, um, should there be more opportunities? And so in now, pipeline at the moment um i can tell you sort of we have uh you know we're looking at a vms business we're looking at an education business uh, we're looking at niche industrial businesses we're looking at media distribution businesses um so yeah so stay tuned great and uh, i want to ask you a question about i mean how, how you evaluate the quality of possible acquisitions so here at red eye we as equity analysts we have a rating system to de- determine that quality and it consists of three main categories people business and financials um and and in the people side i mean of course a, a lot of the focus is on capital allocation uh, of the managers and on the business I, I would say one of the key aspects is is the moat of of the business uh, so, so talk about how you av- evaluate the quality of, of of acquisitions. Yeah. So, look, I like how you guys keep it simple, and um, and that's kind of the philosophy we go with as well. Uh, so, if you look at our investment checklist, uh, we have ten items on our investment checklist. Um, it's not overly complicated. Um, we look at business characteristics, things like you know whether the business has recurring revenue, whether it has low capital intensity, whether it's high margins, uh, you know, none of these would be new or controversial uh, to you guys or to your listeners. Um, and so, I mean, you know, ultimately, I think it's not difficult to define what constitutes a, uh, a quality company. But I think the, uh, the, the key there is to actually maintain your discipline and basically say, hey, look, you know, we're going to stick by this uh, by this list. And we're going to stick to quality, and you know, and, and look, as Mark Leonard says, uh, hurdle rates are magnetic, 
And so once you lower your quality threshold, um, you know, you, you, you tend to sort of go, your business goes the wrong way basically after that. So. And how big is the acquisition market in, in Japan for these type uh, of businesses? And also more detail, how many of them have the, the qualities that you're looking for approximately? Yeah, so people tend to, I guess, forget that Japan is still the third largest economy in the world. So that's the first point. And the second point is that we are at an inflection point um, in Japan. And this is where we saw sort of, wow, this timing is, this is the right timing to build Pinecone. Um, so what we're seeing today is basically the post-war baby boomer generation of company founders. So they are now in their 70s. And I think it's basically we are seeing an entire sort of generation of company founders who are forced into selling their businesses into third party to third parties. Uh, many of these businesses have not come onto the market for, you know, many decades. Um, and just to give you a number, so METI, uh, the Ministry of Ec Economy, Trade and Finance, um, basically have estimated that 60,000 profitable SMEs every year are going to require transition to third parties um, in the, you know, in the coming years. Um, that's a very big number. And, you know, and I, I think METI realizes that this is a an issue, a major issue for the Japanese economy, um, because, you know, many of the, the, the companies will have to shut down if they don't find a third party to, to transfer the company to. Um, and so what's interesting, the, what's, what's happening now is that there are all kinds of policy initiatives in Japan to aid the, uh, the transfer of these profitable SMEs to third parties. Um, and the other thing we're really seeing at the moment is that the business brokerage um, ecosystem here um, has really exploded in recent years. So the number of business brokers has doubled over the last couple of years. Um, and part of that is due to sort of real demand. And part of that is also due to the fact that the government is throwing subsidies um, for people to start up business brokerages. Um, so look, you know, if you track the uh, Tokyo Stock Exchange, um, there are a number of multi-billion-dollar listed business brokerages on the stock market now, and some of these are growing at a hundred percent a year. Um, so it's a phenomenal time at the moment, and you know, we're seeing um, the fact that these business brokerages, you know, being out there, um, they're really boosting the supply of sale-ready businesses um, out there. Um, so look, the upshot is that look, this is a huge problem for us. Um, and look, our job is basically from these 60,000 businesses that are, you know, coming up, theoretically coming up for sale every year, we need to find the best couple of businesses at the right valuation. That is essentially our task. And uh, one one key aspect of, of succession is, is, of course, that you take over the ownership. But for you, uh, the large challenge is, of course, finding the right managers to operate those businesses. As as you said, I mean, the owners are typically quite old and and probably running the companies. And even though you you won't replace them in the like first year or so, maybe that you can talk about as well. How do you think about? I mean, really finding the right managers for the businesses in the long term. 
Yeah, so look, look, that, that's, I guess, where the, you know, where, where a lot of the work will have to be. And, you know, in the most ideal scenario, and, you know, we are, we are coming, you know, in a couple of the opportunities that we're looking at, at the moment, there is a, an anointed successor in the business. So A2IC um, that's been with the business for 10, 20 years. Um, but basically, they, sim- they just don't have the money to buy the business. And we come in the, with the capital and we, you know, we, 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 we basically, um, you know, put together incentive plan. Um, and, and that to us is the, the best case scenario, right? And I think um, it's because it's a fairly easy transition once you validate you have the right management. Um, and look, there's also a second scenario where basically the, um, the, the owner um, is in his 60s or, or early 70s, and he's basically thinking about retiring now. And um, he's thinking ahead of time. And he's basically saying, look, you know, I have another couple of years ago. And, you know, in which case we will basically say, OK, well, the, the, we will um, we will uh, buy the business from you um, and we will basically, you know, you will uh, promise to us you will work with us for at least 24 months. And we spend that time together to find a successor for you. Um, and that that's also a scenario we've come across. Um, so look, there are many, it just depends on what the specific situation is and part of the, you know, part of what we need to do is basically just work with the owner, work with management and, you know, and then people, and as you will know, is, uh, is the most important thing in these small businesses. And considering all the brokers coming up and also the, the businesses that are out for sale and coming up for sale, are there, do you see many other serial acquirers coming up, either consolidating the market or being more of a niche, niche players? Yeah, look, we are the first one, actually. Um, we are the first one that are taking this approach from grounds up. There are a few other players who are sort of more sector focused. Um, and, you know, they have companies like Danaher, et cetera, as their, uh, as their model. Um, and, you know, in terms of a sector agnostic serial acquirer, um, yeah, you know, we are the only people that we've come across. So we will take advantage of this opportunity. Sounds like you have a lot to do in Japan. I mean, Andrew, you are an Australian native, but uh, is that on the table as well to to keep an eye on on other markets or is it solely focused on Japan now for for the next decade or so? Look, I mean, the Japanese market will keep us busy for many decades, I would assume. But um, (laughs) but yeah, look, having said that, look, you know, the North Asia um, generally is facing basically the same kind of, um, you know, aging demographic problem, um, you know, countries like Korea and, um, and Taiwan, um, they are, you know, maybe 10 years behind Japan, just because just, you know, view factor and when they industrialize, etc. Um, so I suspect, you know, we would have uh, an opportunity in the surrounding countries as well. But, uh, but look, that's sort of not, you know, that's a bigger sort of longer term kind of opportunity. And we haven't talked about uh, your name, Pinecone Assets. I mean, it's a beautiful tree, but uh, maybe you can explain why you have chosen this name and in connection with that, maybe say a bit, a bit more about the long-term ambition of the firm. Yeah, so we thought Pinecone was a, really sort of captures what we want to do. Um, and, you know, and basically it's about 
you know, Tancon, it's, it's an it's a evergreen tree, right? So it's about evergreen. It's about long term. It's about sustainability, and you know, and the purpose of a pine cone is basically to protect the seeds, you know, in just until the environment is right to basically, uh, you know, for them to germinate to actually thrive, and sort of from that perspective, like you know, we see ourselves as the safe custodians of these and. Uh, forever homes for these uh, small and medium enterprises, and so we are, yeah. So we just thought pine cones, just it, it, it just really encapsulates what we want to do, um, and and our relationships with our um, and with our portfolio companies. And you mentioned this uh, aspect before, but Shu, in the book you have a whole section uh, dedicated on how to improve the group, where you mentioned decentralization as a key principle. Can you talk about why decentralization is so powerful and, and how your setup is at, at HQ, at Pinecone, and how you think about working with the portfolio companies? Yeah, so decentralization is powerful because, as you know, uh, it's, it's, it's really what makes uh, the decision-making process faster and you can execute and act faster while at growing at their own pace. And those three things are really important for decentralization. Uh, at, at Pinecone HQ, we take a long-term view for our target companies as well as ourselves. So our approach to us and our companies uh, with the right set of governance is, is really key. And we want to create that in an organic way. And we want to let it uh, unfold, uh, just like our name, you know, Pinecone, how it germinates, like Andrew mentioned. And we try to be flexible in our organization so that we could correct our mistakes. Hopefully we don't make too many, but we correct our mistakes along the way and, and mold it so we have a Japan unique decentralization model. And I think you, you know, regarding Japan and the decentralized model, I think we need to talk about decentralization and, and when it works, right? So from what we understand, uh, from our trip to Sweden and understanding about serial acquire model is that uh, part of decentralization model requires the individual or the company to be uh, very much responsible and accountable. And that links with uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And for Japan, these late baby boomer generation are quite entrepreneurial. And so that kind of like checks off. Uh, and, and the next one is about the high trust or trustability, credibility uh, that is required for decentralized model. And I think we have we have no problem there because the employees here are are quite able and trustworthy. Uh, the the only thing we need to be careful of is the setting the right expectations and clear KPI, but not so in a monitoring fashion, but more so in the guiding fashion, which is more uh, likely for Japan. And third, which is the most important would be the, the values that are in the process and output for, 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 for Japan and the craftsmanship or what we call the monozukuri in Japan is what delivers the superior products and quality. And we want to harness that and keep that intact for, for Japan. And it, it would become the asset and strength 
uh, in the decentral, really in the decentralized model, right? If you think about it, that allows them to keep it, not with the headquarters. Okay, so those three is is what probably is necessary and and what has has to happen in in Japan. And to end this section about Pinecone and also connected with your book, I'm I'm curious if there are any other of the principles that you mentioned in in the in the book that you find helpful in the work of of building a serial acquirer. Yeah, so I I had to go back into my book and then make make the necessary link with the serial acquirers, which has never been done before. And uh, I actually came up with uh, quite a, quite a few, uh, and I'll be quick. I came up with half a dozen of them. And the first one and foremost is focus on what really matters, which was the first principle. This applies to serial acquire model, obviously, because we only get a few shots uh, at our deals and connecting with our owners and making a lasting impression. And then we go from there. So we really need to focus on, on what really matters. And part of focus on what really matters is talking about financials. And and, and this is really about what Serial Acquire is about, in, in especially in the, the, the free cash flow generation area. And also we can use this to have a razor sharp focus on our on our target companies and being being there. The second one I think is uh, always imagining the worst case scenario. Um, when we do our due diligence, uh, we always uh, perform a pre-mortem analysis. This is like under the presumption that things will go wrong. So in the due diligence, we do this analysis. So we imagine the worst case scenario. So that principle would come in handy. The third one is the role model. And I think we talked extensively about role models today. So I don't need to go deeper in there, but that's especially important. And we will love to have this connection with Sweden as we go through our decade-long journeys. The fourth one is question more and talk less. I especially like this one because questioning more allows you to be directly uh, flexible with your thoughts. And we tend to have a model in our head and this is how it should be. This is how the governance structure ought to be. But that would be a recipe for failure. So by questioning more to our target companies and to our model itself, I think it'll allow us to, to stay on the edge. So, and then there's two others, which is uh, pretty basic, but go out with interesting people every week, which I mentioned in the book, especially important for serial acquirers to connect, be willing, making their call calls. And then the last one to gauge your people, that is also very important because people's your asset both in the company and outside when you're target companies. And here I, I do mention those five elements that are important, but of which I think the most important is the will and attitude uh, and keeping in mind for that. Wonderful. And and looking back at your time as a consultant and, and the McKinsey Edge book, are there some things you don't agree with anymore now that you're building the serial acquires and, and looking back at what you wrote and, and how you worked at the time? Something I don't agree. I love all my 40s. No, no. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> there are definitely times have changed. Things um, have changed, and I have I have changed. There's, I think there's one overarching message that needs to change if I were to go back and revisit, and that would be it's too consulting centric. 
And so I'm not, you know, this this book is not able to broaden the horizon for others, other readers. And that would is something I would really go dig deep and be applicable to other areas, right? Such as investing and, and other professions. And beneath that, there are the two areas, the principles that struck out for me. One is on the passion, so the perception of passion. I believe that definition is too complicated. And I'd like to keep passion fresh. And for young people especially, it should just be your heart and what your heart tells you and go after it and, and, and don't complicate the matter. So that's something I would really try to adjust. The other would be the best intent in people. So that principle doesn't, when you're in, in a really cocoon environment like, like McKinsey, you, most people have that best intent in people. But as you go on the real world, it's, sometimes it's not true. And if you were trained by people with bad intentions, then you will become someone with bad intentions. And I, and I think that's too naive for me to, to send that message across. And maybe a more general question on that. I mean, working at McKinsey, I mean, you, of course, went into to these large businesses and tried to improve them. And, and my thought is that you don't have any plans to use McKinsey consultants in your SMEs that you're buying. So how do you think about actually, I mean, things you learned uh, working at McKinsey that you won't apply, that you think is wrong for, for the company that you work with, with now? I think a lot of what McKinsey puts out on table uh, is easy to digest for bigger organizations. And it's tailor-made for that. And, and, and why that is so is it is about problem solving at the highest level at the CXO level of a large organization where the people underneath who have the daily hurdles to solve these smaller problems are not in that room. So it's, it's easier for McKinsey to come in and say, you have to do X, Y, Z, and then funnel that down, please. In a small, medium enterprise, you probably know where I'm going at, but that's not so. Everybody's sort of in the room and you as a CEO have to do what the McKinsey might tell you to do. And you're like, oh, no. And there'll be a big pushback, right? And it's very emotional sometimes because you have, you have the legacy. So that, that is a very big difference in terms of thinking that's not too applicable. Yeah, because I think some failed serial acquirers have actually used that model in a, in a, in a way that actually hurts the businesses. So that's that was where I was coming from, actually. It was a bit of a leading question. <laughs> so, uh, as this is a book uh, podcast, we always wrap up with questions about reading and writing. And Andrew, you mentioned in the beginning how important books have been for you. And uh, for our listeners who have, I mean, are keen learners and, and want to become better capital allocators, do you have a title you would like to recommend? I think there's obviously the uh, the foundational sort of reading, which, you know, I think gives you the sort of baseline knowledge into capital allocation. So I think your readers will all know these titles, The Outsiders, Essays of Warren Buffett. Um, you, know, you know, these, um, I, I guess these books, you know, provide great insights, I guess, from an um, observational perspective, right? So, you know, they take case studies and observe businesses, etc. But I think also sort of there's another angle in that, you know, I think if you, you know, I, I think 
everyone should actually also just read um, writings from the practitioner's perspective. And by that, I mean, you know, there are a lot of great capital allocators out there. Um, they publish annual letters, they publish annual reports, etc. cetera, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and I think it's great to sort of just learn from these guys in real time who are there out there making capital allocation decisions. Um, and you could follow people like, you know, Mark Leonard's, um, or you could, you know, also just dig deeper and, you know, and just, you know, any of the, you know, Swedish serial acquirers, um, especially the, the very successful ones. Um, I really just really recommend everyone follow what they do and the capital allocation decisions that they make. Um, and you could also go a bit, you know, a little bit sort of left field, um, you know, ra- you know, recently I've just, you know, started to get into the history of, uh, LVMH and, uh. Bernard Arnold, I mean, that's a great capital allocation story, right? Um, and it's a little bit different, but, you know, it's it's also very applicable. And Shu in the McKinsey Edge, you describe yourself as a junkie of self-help books. It's really hard to recommend to someone else. It's quite personal, but is there one title that has influenced you a lot? Yeah, so you're right. I, I love self-help books. It's It gives you, it's like a positive you know, jolt medicine makes you very happy if after you read it. There's there's like a lot, way too many from, you know, like Stephen Covey's Seven Habits to Don't Sweat the Small Stuff from uh, Richard Carlson or authors that are really bestsellers like Malcolm Gladwell, right? With with uh, David and Goliath or Outliers to, um, I guess, popular books by... The investment gurus, which would be like uh, Cialdini's book, The Influence. Uh, these are mainstream, but uh, another one I think re- of recent would be Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money, which I actually it's in the self help category for me. Um, and but so I really like all of. But if I were to pick one book, uh, I would say it's The Magic of uh, Thinking Big, and it's a uh, it's 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 by David Schwartz. And it's a combination of business and self-help book. And, and the key message is that you don't have to be fearful for anything. And you just paint yourself a big picture and just go at it. And I really like the message. But underneath that message, it gives you a lot of tactical day-to-day how to better yourself. And it's done in the most eloquent way possible and easy to digest way possible. And so it gives you a lot of, you know, we're in the domain of self-help, so courage to just go after what you want to go after. Uh, I think partly, you know, to tie it in with what we're doing uh, here in Pinecone is that it, it does talk about big picture and it does talk about um, not uh, selling yourself short for your, your visions and being a pioneer. And all of that message in, in that book, both from the individual perspective and organization perspective, really it strikes the chord. I like the connection between uh, self-help and self-understanding for investors. We also need to to read those type of books and see it from that perspective. Uh, and um, I mean, we have spoken about your, your good notes taking and uh, you come across as a very structured and thorough and dedicated person. So many of our listeners are curious and they want to learn how to improve their processes. So do you have one title uh, that you can recommend in that? area as well very difficult question 
I really didn't read a lot of the process oriented or process improvement books because McKinsey sort of taught you all that throughout their their journey. So you you were inundated with with how to improve your processes, right? Product optimization. So uh, I want to give you a sort of a flavor uh, that I liked, which I read a decade ago, called Immunity to Change. And 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 this this book was written by Harvard professors. It's quite academic, but talks both at the individual level and at the organizational level. And the short message is human beings are, are, are lazy and, 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 and they don't want to change. They're immune to change. And often in, in, our, in our day-to-day, we, we talk about additional things and, and how to improve, which is plus, 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 right? But it's also important to know what are the things you have that you need to unlearn and de-bottleneck that you carry a baggage now as you get older. And as we get older and older, I find that to be uh, very important. And, and, and the core message of that uh, in this book is, is something that will help improve your process. So to de-bottleneck your process, sort of speak. Um, that might be kind of what I what I can propose to our, your listeners. Great advice. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes for all the listeners to to find the books. And I also have to ask you, I mean, you wrote this book 2016, it was published. Do you have any ideas of, of writing another one on any any topic? Yeah, um, sort of. I've, I've written a book in, in Japan on leadership feedback already, published about two years ago. It's done quite well. And uh, my current focus is on um, hiring and, and, and development of individuals and going there. And Maybe, maybe one day I will, I'll be able to, you know, me and Andrew and we'll be able to write deeper about the Zero Choir and this entire model and this universe and, and then ask you guys and, you know, that would, be, that would be a dream come true. Looking forward to that. Shu Hattori and Andrew Shu, thank you so much for coming on Investing by the Books podcast. Is there something more you want to add before we finish up here? So from my side, uh, I, 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 would, I would love to say that I really love what Red Eye is doing in this ecosystem. I'm always bewildered by the depth uh, and, and the astuteness of of the analysis, how you can even get there. And it's very helpful that you are the bridge of everybody, right? Of all the participants. And then that to me is something I'd like to add. Thank you so much. Andrew? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I I second that and I think, um, you know, you guys have done a great job connecting the community um, through books. Um, and we both love your podcast. We both love, in, you know, reading books. We both love business investing. So, yeah, so really, really, um, we feel, it's, we're really glad to be on the on the podcast finally. Hope to see you in March in Stockholm at the Serial Aquarius event then. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much. And uh, lastly, we have many fund managers, analysts, operators and private investors listening here. Uh, are there any job openings or investing opportunities available at Pinecone? Yeah, so look, we are actually recruiting here uh, at Pinecone. And so, yeah, so, you know, anyone that's uh, that's interested, um, you know, you guys, you, you, they can find us at www.pinecone.co.jp. Also, you can sign up to our uh, emailing list uh, on our website uh, just to keep track of what we're doing. 
Perfect. Thank you so much, both. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Redeye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.